Well, welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. And today I'm going to explore some history of the village of Paw Paw. It's the seat of justice in Van Buren County. And even though it has an unusual name, it has a fascinating history as well. So come along and join me. So the township was originally called Lafayette and it was rechristened Paw Paw in 1867. The name Paw Paw comes from the river that is nearby, which bears the same name. And the river got its name from the Indians from the pawpaw fruit, which grows thickly on the banks of the river. Pawpaw fruit is a large yellowish green to brown fruit, and it comes from a particular tree that grows in the eastern United States and also in Canada. And the flavor is somewhat of a custardy apple type flavor. Some might describe it as a custard-flavored fruit that has a tang of banana, mango, and pineapple all blended together. It's one of those fruits that you really just have to try. The population of the township of Pawpaw in 1874 was 2,752 people. Just by comparison, the village of Pawpaw population, according to the 2010 census, was 3,534 people. So it is a very small population village in Van Buren County, but it is the county seat. There's a publication I came across online that tells of the history of Pawpaw, and it's called An Early History of Lafayette slash Pawpaw, Michigan. Once again, Lafayette was the original name before it was changed to Pawpaw. So some of the stories are kind of interesting and peculiar, so I'm going to read you some of them. Uh, In 1833, E.L. Barrett, induced by another man who came later, brought his wife and several children and settled upon 160 acres of land near Pawpaw Village before there was any framed house in the county. Another man by the name of Captain Barrett took special pride in his own fine oxen, and at one time he owned nine pairs of oxen, which he broke and trained with great care. He even named them respectively. One pair was named Nick and Duke, another was Buck and Bright, another was Bryn and Barry, another was Jim and Larry, another was Spot and Spark, then there was Charlie and Ned, Bill and Joe, Sam and Ez, and finally Ben and Tom. And it's said that with his oxen, he used to break a great deal of land for the new settlers, and he boasted of breaking several hundred acres in a year. Captain Barrett built on a village lot in Pawpaw and is said to have been the first framed house in the county. He once drove his team of oxen, or one of his team of oxen, from Pawpaw to Little Prairie Rond, and upon his return experienced the exciting sensation of being chased by a panther and a pack of wolves. His first mercantile venture was the purchase of a barrel of whiskey at five York shillings a gallon and the sale of it to his thirsty settlers at 50 cents a pint. Another man by the name of John Agard located into the area in 1833 and he established a trading post in which he did a large amount of business with the Indians trading with furs, sugar, etc., He had at his place a dozen or more log huts in which he stored his goods, 
and until his death, his post was a famous resort for Indians and usually presented a very busy scene. After his death, his family moving away, it was abandoned. Mr. Agard had suddenly died of a heart attack in October 1835, and he was buried at his place. His coffin was also built by somebody that lived in the village, and, of course, he was buried on his own land. So over the years that followed that, there were many settlers that uh, carved their mark in the area of Pawpaw from New York to Vermont that settled in the area. Some were traveling on the territorial road and found their way to the village of Pawpaw. There were even a few settlers that came from England. And there's a lot of little bios in this book. There's uh, so many, I'm just going to skip around and read some of them to you. Uh, Abraham Bell came from Ohio to Pawpaw in 1837 and started a brickyard. Edmonds Hayes, a tailor, came with a friend named Rufus Courier, who was a carpenter, and they made their trip from Pennsylvania to Pawpaw in 1838 and would eventually settle in the area. And one somewhat humorous story here is a man by the name of James Lee came with his wife and settled in Pawpaw in 1841. And the story reads, Mr. Lee says he used to get sugar for his family by plowing for P.P. Yaw, an old Indian who had a farm in the same section. The Indians were always well supplied with sugar, but could not master the business of plowing. Lee didn't get much sugar for his days of plowing. What he did get, he had to divide with a man by the name of Asa Hinkley to pay for the use of his horses. Mr. Lee used to take his dinner with him when he went to plow for P.P. Yaw. One day at noon, he discovered the dogs had captured his dinner. Marching briskly into P.P. Yaw's house, he told the squaw that her dogs had devoured his dinner and he must have some from her. The old woman handed him a wooden ladle, pointed to a large kettle full of stewed corn, and told him to help himself. He began to eat, and then presently the dogs came up and joined him in his endeavors to eat and began dipping their mouths into his ladle. He wrapped them sharply with the ladle, but they insisted upon keeping him company, and as he was desperately hungry and was assured by the squaw that it was according to the etiquette of the house for the dogs to eat out of the same dish with the family, he proceeded to complete his meal. And he soon got so full that he didn't mind his canine messmates. So that's kind of a, an amusing story. And it's also interesting that there was a uh, Indian chief named P.P. Yaw who lived in Pawpaw. Gotta be uh, kind of funny to hear that one. All right, let's move on to some other stories. This is another story that's recanted here. Uh, approximately in the year 1830, Edwin Mears, a young man living in the Pawpaw Village, set out in midwinter with a half a dozen companions on a hunting expedition. In the course of the day, young Mears found himself separated from his comrades, and despite his persistent efforts and shouts, he could neither find them nor his way homeward. So he wandered through the woods four days and nights, half dead with cold and hunger, and at the end of the fourth day found himself on the shore of Lake Michigan. There he discovered an abandoned hut, and in it a few grains of oats, which he ate with great avidity, for he had no food since leaving Pawpaw four days previously. His sufferings from cold and hunger were intense, and he had made up his mind to perish there when he heard human voices and was rescued by a party sent out to search for him, when it was found that he had not returned home. 
he was in a most unfortunate condition, and for a time, after being taken home, it was thought he would die. But at last he rallied and long survived to recount his painful experience. It's said that a few years afterwards, Mr. Muir's rifle was found at the foot of a beech tree somewhere in the woods. So the first settlement in the present township of Pawpaw was made on the site of the Pawpaw Village in the year 1832, when a man by the name of Rodney Hinkley located upon a farm in the northern part of the present village. It was in that year also that Pierce Barber of Prairie Rond began to erect a sawmill on the river at the west end of the village. Mr. Barber soon sold his interest in the mill to a man by the name of Job Davis and Rodney Hinkley, who soon sold it to someone else in 1833 to Peter Gremps and Lyman J. Daniels. Peter Gremps became a well-known figure in the Pawpaw area. He came from New York, and he was in search of a mill site in the west somewhere, and he returned to his home after purchasing the Pawpaw property. But he didn't settle permanently on his new possessions until about 1835, when he moved into a cabin just west of the sawmill. Edwin Schultz, Mr. Gramps' nephew, came out from New York with his uncle and worked for the sawmill over the years. Mr. Gramps periodically went back east to New York and left the sawmill in charge with his partner, Mr. Daniels, who thought at one time there should be a tavern, especially as the territorial road was likely to pass through Pawpaw. So one day in 1835, he went to a meeting in Schoolcraft and spoke with a man by the name of Daniel Dodge, who had been doing some teaching in the area. And he approached Daniel Dodge and said he would give him an entire block in Pawpaw and build a boarding house for him if he would come and keep a tavern in it. So Dodge agreed and in the same year opened an inn which became one of the most famous in that part of the state for the very long time. And it became known as Dodge's Tavern. Early in 1835, during the summertime, Mr. Gramps concluded that there ought to be a store in the village, so he went and sent word to a man named Edward Lagrave of Kalamazoo that he wanted a carpenter capable of building a good store. So Lagrave found a man by the name of Williamson Mason, a carpenter from Wayne County, New York, who had been in the West working in his trade since 1832. And he induced him to go over to Pawpaw and build Gremp's store. So he brought along with him a few companions, and they actually lived in a few abandoned shanties on the west side of the Pawpaw River, while the store was being built, and it became the first store in Pawpaw. When it was finished, Gremps moved his family into the back of the building before it was entirely finished, and soon afterwards stocked the store with goods which he had brought from New York and began his business in it. And Edward Schultz became his clerk. Soon afterwards, a need for a blacksmith shop was being felt, so Rodney Hinkley had put up a blacksmith shop, but little work had been done with it. When settlers needed blacksmithing, they ended up either going to Schoolcraft or over to St. Joseph. So Peter Gramps said to Williamson Mason, we must have a blacksmith. So Gramps thought he could get uh, a man by the name of Craig Byes of St. Joseph County to move into the area and establish a blacksmith shop if he could gift him a shop in which to establish himself with. 
And this man named Buys actually did it. He, he did eventually move to Pawpaw, and he established an active trade as a blacksmith for about six years. And then he moved to Ohio. The first shoemaker in Pawpaw was Charles Harrington, who continued working at his trade until he eventually moved to Lawton. He had arrived in Pawpaw and established his shoemaking shop in 1836. Mr. Williamson Mason established the first school in the village in the fall of 1836. So Peter Gramps was considered to be the founder of Pawpaw because of his establishment of the mill and his establishment of the first store in the village. And over time, other merchants moved to the area and established their own stores. Nathan Mears was the next storekeeper to establish himself, and he was a merchant from Chicago. Another man by the name of Alonzo Sherman came from New York State to Pawpaw in 1844 and established a mercantile business in the village. And soon many other merchants came and established shops to the point where there was ultimately five dry goods stores, four grocery stores, five drug stores, one clothing store, and numerous other minor marts for different types of businesses in the downtown area. They even had doctors and lawyers and a newspaper established in the area as the years followed. And Peter Gramps became also the first postmaster being appointed in 1835. And of course, there were other mills established in addition to Gremps and Daniel's Mill. The first wedding that was held in the village of Pawpaw was between a man named Befontaine and Hannah Mead in 1833. The bride was a servant girl in the service of a man named John Thomas, and the groom was an employee of a mill run by Job Davis, and he was essentially a mill hand. The first child born in Pawpaw was the son of Archibald Byes, and the first death of a villager was the wife of Daniel O. Dodge, who died in 1837. She was buried in the Tavern Garden, but in 1838, when the cemetery in the northern portion of the village was laid out, her remains were moved and reinterred there. There's a couple of other interesting stories about some of the early holidays in Pawpaw. Uh, on the last day of the year in 1835, Peter Gremps moved into his new house that had been built for him by Williamson Mason and Joseph Royas. I guess they were builders of homes at that time. And it was a custom for the Indians living in the area that they would visit on the new year and they would make calls on the white settlers. And it was understood for the purpose of ratifying friendships for another year. So soon enough, on New Year's Day, an ensuing band of about 25 Indians, gaily adorned with paint and feathers, called in force upon the households of many of the villagers. And part of their traditions, much to the trepidation of the women, was kissing the women as part of the traditional ceremony. So altogether, the affair was a jolly one, notwithstanding the kisses for some of the women. Mrs. Dodge put on her own war paint when she saw the 25 Indians approaching, demanding to kiss her, and with a sudden attack, routed and drove from her house the Indians at the point of a rolling pin. Sounds a lot like my mom, actually. 
Anyhow, so that was one story. The other one was about the first 4th of July celebration. It was held as a national holiday in Pawpaw, and it occurred in 1836. And according to tradition, it was a very patriotic and enthusiastic affair. And during the festivities, the veterans of the War of 1812, which there were a few present that lived in the village at that point, would periodically give anvil salutes, I guess by hammering anvils with a hammer as part of the festivities. There was also a banquet and a demonstration in the so-called public square, which was really just an open space in the woods just west of the village. So I want to cover a few of the other firsts in the village. The first fire department was established in 1868 with one engine company and one hose. There were a few fires early on. There was a business center in the village on three occasions was ravaged by several fires and two of them were especially disastrous. The first was one that took place in 1859 when they had the old Exchange Hotel standing in the center of the village, and it was completely destroyed. In 1866, the flames swept down both sides of Main Street and West Kalamazoo Street in the village of Pawpaw, and the loss was a pretty severe one, uh, and apparently it destroyed the fine brick blocks which were lined on either side of the street, and that whole district burned down in 1866. So there was definitely a need for a fire department. There was also a telegraph company organized in 1876 for the purpose of providing local telegraph conveniences, and the Pawpaw Press was established in 1843. And it was the first newspaper published in Van Buren County. And it was named the Pawpaw Democrat. In 1880, the National Independent went into existence in the village of Pawpaw, which was another newspaper. The village of Pawpaw had no organized banking institutions until 1865, when the first National Bank of Pawpaw was established and it had a capital of $50,000. And this was at the time of the early banking industry in Michigan, and there's a, a lot of interesting stories about that. There were several different currencies drafted uh, in various parts of Michigan, backed by insurance companies and banks at various times. And uh, it's quite a, a very interesting history in the days before currency was more regulated as it is today. Now, an interesting story happened in 1867 when the First National Bank was robbed. And for many years, it was an important local sensation. It happened in March of 1867. And while the bank was occupying temporary quarters in B.M. Buck's hardware store, pending completion of the new bank building. The cashier, E.O. Briggs, discovered when opening the bank safe one Monday morning that the upwards of $22,000 in bonds and currency had been extracted and that without leaving any marks to show that the combination had been forced. Pinkerton's Chicago Detective Agency was called upon to furnish the key to the mystery and try to figure out what happened here. So they sent one of their core of detectives to Pawpaw, undercover it sounds like, and he resided in the area for six months, professing to be an insurance agent. But no one save two of the bank officials really knew his true identity. Until one day when he startled the community by causing the arrest of R. M. Buck, the hardware store merchant, a young man high in popular esteem 
on the charge of robbing the bank. The evidence against him was complete, and he was convicted and sentenced to three years in confinement in the state prison. Nearly all of the money, which had been buried by Buck on a farm, was recovered, so they caught the right guy. If you don't know about Pinkerton's detective agency, if you read a lot of history books, they were like the biggest detective agency in the country for a very long time, and they were called in on a national level to help resolve many cases that were puzzling. So if you read history books from around the country on different stories around the 1800s, you'll frequently come across the name the Pinkerton Detective Agency. And the Prospect Cemetery, which is near Pawpaw now, was established in March of 1859 um, by the Prospect Hill Cemetery Association. And it was established on a small rise of a hill, which was on Prospect Hill, which was one of the highest elevations in Van Buren County at its summit. And at one time, they had erected an observatory at the top of that summit as well. The cemetery today covers over 30 acres and has a lot of natural beauty interwoven with the very interesting detailed monuments. So it's one of those cemeteries that's on my list to eventually go check out and pay a visit to as it probably has some amazing history. So that's just a collection of stories that are part of the history of Pawpaw. So Pawpaw is considered to be located in the middle of grape country, and there are a lot of lush orchards and vineyards in the area. And St. Julian's is one of the well-known wineries in the area, and they often do wine tastings and winery tours. And the village of Pawpaw is well known for its Labor Day Festival, which is a harvest and wine festival that's held annually. And the village itself is not very far from Lake Michigan. It's probably a 30-minute drive. And so it's a really a nice location. It's really in the heart of wine country. So if you love doing wine tours and attending events that are wine tastings and that sort of thing. The Pawpaw Village is usually the center of attention on that. And that Wine and Harvest Festival that they hold brings in about 50,000 visitors to the community over the Labor Day weekend annually. And it's a really big event. They hold all sorts of activities, including grape stomping, wine tasting. There's a 5K run. There's a bicycle classic and a whole lot of other events that they hold throughout the, the weekend. And it's certainly a, something to go visit and take part in. And, of course, the village has a lot of really nice lakes nearby that are close by to the downtown area. So it is a pretty nice little community to visit. And of course, the wine history is quite interesting. I intend to have one of my guests on one of my podcast episodes coming up to be a member of someone from the St. Julian Winery over in Pawpaw Village. So be sure to look out for that one. That should be an interesting one. I'm still in the middle of scheduling that interview as I, I do this episode. But I kind of just wanted to give you a little bit of history today on some of the early stories and the founding of the village of Pawpaw. It's got a f interesting history. It's got a peculiar name. When I first moved to Michigan and I heard about the village of Pawpaw, I thought, you're kidding me. You know, that's really such a funny name. But it's really an endearing name too. And it has its own unique character if you ever get time to go visit that place. So definitely worth checking out. So if you like today's episode on some of the history and stories from the early days of Pawpaw, 
Be sure to leave a review on whatever app that you are listening on. Positive reviews are always helpful to help other people find out about my podcast channel. And if you'd like to find out more about me, you can visit michaeldelaware.com. You're certainly welcome to send me a message on that website. Any suggestions that you might have for future episodes. And if you know someone that might be a great guest for one of my podcast interviews about local history, be sure to mention that in the contact form as well. And as always, I hope that you'll join me next time as we take another journey into yesterday and explore yet another interesting chapter in the stories of Southwest Michigan's past. Thanks for listening.